Aloha! You are listening to Inside the Desert Oasis Room, episode number 140. This episode is sponsored by Tandawai Rum, the world's largest rum producer and winner of over 170 international medals in the past four decades. Check out their webpage at tandawaiusa.com or follow them on Facebook or Instagram at tandawaiusa. This episode is sponsored by the Tiki Bar T-Shirt Club, where their monthly t-shirt designs pay tribute to a Polynesian bar or restaurant from days long past. Each design is available for a limited time and will never be produced again. For more information and to check out this month's shirt, visit tikibartshirtclub.com. On this episode, we podcast live from San Diego Comic-Con 2019 and bring to you the Tiki Art and Polynesian Pop in American Culture panel, moderated by James Wasser. I was privileged to not only document but also participate in this panel, along with other luminaries in the current Tiki movement, including artists Josh Shag Eagle, Bosco Hernjack, Tom Big Toe Laura, Susie Atomic Kitty Mosher, Devon Devereaux, author Martin S. Lindsay, and mug makers Brandon Heraldez and Holden Westland. We chat about each panelist's respective contributions, observations, and personal perspectives in the modern-day tiki movement from the largest comic, art, and pop culture convention in the world, the San Diego Comic-Con. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did bringing it to you. And if you did, hit that subscribe button. Subscribing makes it easier for you to follow our adventures. Shares on your social media pages are always appreciated. And if you'd like to help support the show, go to DesertOasisRoom.com to pick up some merch or make a donation. This podcast does not survive without the help of its sponsors or its listeners. So every purchase or donation, no matter the size, is totally appreciated and helps keep this podcast coming to you every week. Okay, here's our panel, Tiki Art and Polynesian Pop in American Culture, from the world-famous San Diego Comic-Con. I wanted to do this panel not only because I'm a Comic-Con fan and because I'm a, a Tiki Art fan, but because I have a lot of respect for the, the peoples of uh, Oceania and Pacific cultures in general. Uh, I've only been able to go to Hawaii so far, but the, the artwork that they were able to make and the carvings in homage to people and to, to gods is fantastic, which then got interpreted to the work you're going to see today. So originally the, the word Tiki came from Maori uh, in the New Zealand area where people did carvings at least a thousand years ago of ancestors and gods. It got spread across the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is an area uh, larger than North and South America put together, just strings of islands of wildly different um, religions and cultures. And finally, you had forms of tiki from statues to carvings in all the major island groups, uh, which are loosely divided into Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia, Polynesia being where Hawaii and Rapa Nui are. And uh, eventually this art you know, got reinterpreted and brought to America. And the first person I want to have talk to you is um, Martin Lindsay, who's he's an expert in San Diego tiki, and he also knows a lot about uh, historical tiki becoming Polynesian pop and how it's morphed and changed. So Martin, can you talk a little bit about how uh, in the uh, World War II era and beyond, how Tiki was brought to the U.S. and and well, sure. talk about that. Sure. Um, can you all hear me right here? Okay, great. Um, beginning in the 30s, actually, actually 20s and 30s, there was a uh, popular um, a lot of a lot of bars and restaurants oh, yeah, were sure. island themed, um, hula hula girl kind of themed, but it actually. Started uh, after Prohibition, so in in Mexico actually before Prohibition, we had a couple places here in San Diego and Tijuana area 
Um, can you lean into the mic, Martin? Yeah. Thank you. Can we? Can, okay. Here, how about that? Okay. Um, in like 1928 in Tijuana, we had the Aloha Club. So these bars uh, down in Tijuana area and things like that were fed by um, a lot of tourism uh, and the military crowds coming through ports like San Diego and Los Angeles. So people coming through uh, military installations and naval training center, places like that, they were coming and going from the Pacific Islands when they actually came back, they decided, hey, you know what? This is really cool. I think I'm going to start my own place. So in the 30s, of course, places like uh, Don the Beachcomber, Trader Vic's, and those kinds of places started out doing bars. But there wasn't that much tiki, actually, in them at the time. Thank you. <laughs> OK. All right. How, how, how's that better? Um, so then when the tiki's actually started appearing, that was more later on um, when they started incorporating the actual totems and effigies and carvings and things like that from the islands. Um, but I think uh, definitely here in San Diego, it comes from the military aspect um, and the traveling and exploration that you saw going on at that time. Um, it's also one of the things um, in San Diego here, we had several places that were starting out later on in the 40s, and that's when they uh, actually started incorporating more art from, from the Polynesian islands, including you're going to have bamboo, you're going to have a lot of tribal artifacts and things put in. So in, into the tiki bars, what happens then is a lot of people see them. They are also experiencing things from popular culture. It becomes more and more a popular culture thing when you see all of these things in movies. It's romanticized. And all of the people that are visiting these places are saying, hey, this is really cool. I could actually do this in my own home, that kind of thing. Hey, so, Martin, I know you spent years working on this book that's about to come out. It's 90 years in San Diego Tiki, mm -hmm. and it sounds like it's been an enormous project. Can you just briefly, because we're constrained for time, just talk about the process of researching, writing? We were talking about this a few weeks ago, and then yeah. releasing this book. Well, I'm actually self-publishing it, so it's been a lot more work than just having somebody else do it for me. Uh, it's taken three, four years of research uh, along with talking to people like these guys here uh, about all of the things they know about. I'm, I feel like I'm more of a collector of information rather than a historian, but um, all of that stuff kind of goes part and parcel. You, you start going down a rabbit hole and figuring out, okay, well, we have this one little matchbook from a really cool tiki bar. What about it? Who are the people that actually started it? Who are the people that... Um, put all that blood, sweat, and tears into making it a really cool bar. They wanted to start a bar or a restaurant. What happens then? So you do a lot of research. You do a lot of going to archives. You talk to people. You talk to 90-year-old custodians of photo archives. Um, you, you go out and find, actually, interviews with people. So it's, it's a lot of work that way. Um, as an uh, art director in an advertising agency, I know all about the printing aspect of it. So that's... That's part and parcel of the whole project. Um, but finding bids from printers, working with um, color proofing, all that stuff, it takes years to get it done properly. So. Hey, I appreciate that. We're looking forward to seeing your book. I'm sorry, I have a lot of visuals. I'm hoping I can get them up on the screen in the next minute or two. Um, so Susanna, um, I know you've worked in corporate branding and in sort of traditional, not eight to five like a lot of us work and as a commercial artist, um, and then you, you broke out on your own. Can you talk a little bit about being an entrepreneur and being self-employed versus working for a large corporation? Yeah. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, so uh, other than doing tiki art, my main career has been, oh, is this on? A little bit? Okay. Uh, yeah, I've worked really in the close. toy industry for about 12 years, so I've worked for Hasbro and Disney and places like that. And um, yeah, you have to weigh the Positive, positives and negatives of you know a steady paycheck and health insurance those are really nice uh, but 
then you're listening to marketers and licensors and you have these big dreams and ideas you want to see and you know they get cost cut and you know you kind of have to like see a lot of dreams die and uh, <laughs> so it's been nice uh, this past year I've quit that and I'm doing my own art full-time and gone freelance and it's been fantastic because it's it's a big risk but when you put yourself out there and and you just have a good reputation because you have a good work ethic uh, you can make it happen and it's it's definitely worth it it's definitely worth the long hours and late nights and you know all the work you have to do to self-promote which is hard for a lot of artists because we're naturally we want our art to speak for ourselves for itself um, but that's part of the job is you really have to get out there and not be afraid to talk to people and not be afraid to promote yourself. So it's been good. <laughs> the Comic-Con told me that we should like, I guess speak, I guess my mic must be a lot louder. I guess we should just kind of like talk as loud as we can so everybody okay. can hear in the back, although this isn't a huge room. If the tech person is around, could they come up? Because I'm still trying to get my, uh, my images up. So um, in, your, in your work, what, are your, what were your influences going from commercial art and then to becoming interested in Tiki? Can you talk about inspirations and things? Sure. Um, I grew up in Santa Cruz, so it's like, oh, hi. <laughs> there we go. Uh, it's a surf town, so I was always around kind of the surf culture. And then I went to art school up in San Francisco and went to the Tonga Hut or the Tonga Room for the first time and seeing that whole um, rainstorm that they do. And I was just fascinated, like, what is this all about? This whole, you know place you're transported to and you're drinking out of pineapple and there's rain inside and a cheesy band that comes out on a catamaran and I just loved it and I wanted to find out more and from there I found out uh, about Trader Vic's in Emeryville and started going to all the bars and then you started meeting other like-minded people in really loud shirts and <laughs> and then you find out there's this whole community like kind of in the early days of the internet there was Tiki Central before, yeah, <laughs> and it was great, and I met so many people through that. Um, when I moved to LA, I worked at uh, the Lucky Tiki, which is a long gone tiki bar, which is sad, um, but it was great. Like, it's such a positive, creative community of people, and it's really changed my life. Like, tiki has just changed the course of my career and my friendships, so. <laughs> and Susanna, what, throughout the rest of this year and into next year, what do you see yourself working on, like painting, sculptures, or? Uh, next big thing is Tiki Oasis. That's coming up in a, what, month now? Three, three weeks. There. Good. So that'll be really fun. That's always a crazy fun party. And, um, and I've got a glass design coming out for um, Martin Kate Spar up in San Francisco, um, the Smuggler's Cove. So All that's right. exciting. Hey, Tom, um, can you show your book to the audience? Yeah. So I had a bunch of images. We'll see if we can get those. But just kind of flip open some pages. And again, like Martin was talking about, tell us that this is a retrospective or a partial of your work. Um, how did this process come about? And The process of the book? The book and ch choosing the photos and, and the whole thing. Oh, um, well, I, this is um, an independent publisher in, in um, um, Wisconsin. And... Uh, they are normally a. Um, they normally pu publish books of pinup photographers, and um, as you can see, I have a lot of uh, um, powerful, sensual female forms in in, in my uh, in my book. So they thought I would be a good fit for them to do their first book, and uh, um, I sent them basically my whole uh, all of the work that I have. Um, uh, photo, good photos of which for those artists out there make sure you get good photos of your art because uh, uh, there's paintings that I did that are you know sort of seminal pieces in my career that I just I, I can't chronicle because I don't have good photos so very important um, but uh, the, the the people at um, at uh, working class publishing are are amazing, Bob and Kelly, and they, uh, I, I sent them the work and they composed this, this beautiful book. Um, there's some compositions in here that I kind of never would have thought of, and um, you know, juxtapositions of things that, that I didn't see um, between my tiki art and my custom culture art, which is the sort of hot rod stuff. But there's a lot of really cool sort of 
um, spreads and stuff. So uh, definitely a collaborative effort. Um, and you know, I think it nicely um, um, sort of presents my weird tiki's tiki and, and other and sort of you've done a lot of uh, traveling and surfing and gone to Pacific Islands and I think you have an upcoming trip to Rapa Nui maybe uh, <laughs> we're, we're working on it so tell, tell us about because I, I mean to me travel is pretty amazing yeah I mean the way, the way that I got into tiki was I used to work at uh, art direct surf surf companies and this this one company that I worked at should I be using the microphone? I guess I don't need it. I'm I'm kind of a loudmouth. Um, no, that's good. The people in the back need to hear. Okay, okay. So so uh, working for uh, one particular surf company, they used to send the all of the artists at the company and then professional athletes to different Polynesian island groups. So we would go to Tahiti and and Fiji and. Samoa and uh, and all the Hawaiian islands and you know go surfing and, and sort of do re research and development uh, and part part of that we, we wanted to try to immerse ourselves in, in the cultures and learn about it so um, that's really this is in the early 90s and so that's where I kind of uh, uh, developed an appreciation uh, for the, the the mana of of all the the, the different um, art traditions of the different um, Polynesian cultures. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, travel travel is 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 definitely battery recharging for an artist. Uh, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to make sure everyone has a chance to talk. So, Bosco, I had a clip of your film, and uh, it looks like we're just going to have to talk about the film. But can you talk a little bit about the, your documentary that was made and the pro? I know for some people. Like Robert Williams talked about it being very trying, the documentary. I mean, was it challenging? Uh, did you enjoy it? It was the most pleasurable experience of my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not being facetious. The, the worst or the best? The best. Oh, the best. most pleasurable. It was just um, the whole crew we worked with were all like top-notch Hollywood people. It was not, you were never left wondering what's going to happen next or what are they going to do. Or It was just, uh, it just kept going up the, you know, from the start to uh, when it how got screened the, at the Egyptian How theater. can the fans watch the movie? September, it's supposed to be a, a new, longer version supposed to be released. So look on social media or uh, yes. our website. How much longer? When you're, when you're carving in the film, you're really intent. It's like, tell me about the, your thoughts before you take the piece of wood carve it while you're carving and then when you're done like what's what's going through your head well uh, for a larger piece um, I like to live with the log for a little while and kind of get a sense of what's in there what wants to come out um, I didn't realize until you mentioned it that I looked so intense when I'm doing my art but I guess I do <laughs> um, you're just as you're carving you're looking at this 3D form and space and you're trying to bring up certain elements of it and I, I really can't describe it. It's, uh, it's like being on a wave. It's, you're in a zone and you, know, you don't hear anything around you. You're just working on this thing. Um, and the other thing is um, I know you, you, you're constantly turning out new work. I mean, are you working on any really large projects or anything big that you'd like to talk about or share? Yeah. Um, well, we have the website. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years now. This is my nine-to-five job, is making tiki art, sculpture, uh, ceramics, designing spaces. Uh, at the moment, we're finishing a big job out in Maui. Uh, I'm doing a show of my other art, ironically enough, that has nothing to do with tiki, up in Hollywood on the 18th, so I'm working on that as well. I know it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with this, but... I'm, it's, that's what I do every single day out in the shop. It's just tiki, tiki, tiki. It's, uh... Uh, this, this art, I want to ask a few of the artists. Um, so you, you may not know this, uh, folks, but some very powerful and influential people all went to California State University, Long Beach. Uh, two of them went to art school, which was Josh and Tom. Uh, one became a little bit famous, Steven Spielberg, and then I, I went to school there. I'm not quite as famous as any of the other ones, but uh, a lot of the other panelists also went to art school, and I've always been interested in the whole formal education versus self-taught kind of thing. 
So maybe any of the folks like Josh, can you chime in? Um, how valuable is art school? Would you recommend people go? Well, yeah, I would. If you're into art and you want to be an artist, I would definitely say go to art school because that taught me a work ethic. You know how to paint every day, how to meet deadlines, how to do things I, I hadn't been able to do before. And speaking of Cal State Long Beach, where both Big Toe and I went, uh, they stressed a really classic art education. So I remember I had friends going to art schools all over Southern California, and I was struggling to paint like a, a life study of some flowers in a bowl on a table with some fruit with oil paint for my final painting project. And my friends were nailing beer cans to chairs. And <laughs> they all work at Aaron Brothers or, or you know. <laughs> so I think because it was a really classic art education, it, it gave me certain things that I definitely use every day as an artist. So um, you can make it without going to art school. A lot of well-known artists have done that. Um, if you've got a really good work ethic and a passion for doing it. But I wouldn't have been able to have this career if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone to art school. Um, another thing is I, I've noticed both yourself and um, Mr. Geeky Tiki Brandon have been able to land an enormous amount of licenses to do uh, Star Wars and Disney and Planet of the Apes and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, which is pretty amazing merging pop culture. I mean, not necessarily with Tiki, but just with art. And I was talking to you a little bit last night uh, about this, and I've talked to other artists too, and occasionally it can be challenging dealing with these large, large companies to get the licensing rights or whatever. So maybe um, both Brandon and Shag can talk a little bit about like when you want to work with these companies, <laughs> what? Because I, I believe Brandon, you have a hundred. Is it 149 licenses? We've got around 150. I was uh, I was drinking rum with them last night. I was giving we them. We haven't a hard done time. them all. So, Golden Girls tiki's haven't come out just yet, but there's a little right. sneak peek. It's but, coming. Uh, when you're dealing with, when you're getting the, so you want to do Millennium Falcon, whatever it is. Oh, by the way, the main thing I wanted to get across with this guy is Lando Calrissian, uh, Return of the Jedi, Billy D. Williams. And I was just going to say. It's pretty oh my, cool. He's going to be signing oh my our God. tiki mugs today. That's is pretty he, cool. Is he as amazing in person as he is in Return of the Jedi? I haven't met him personally. Okay. So, but, so um, go on about the licensing part. All right. Um, so we started, uh, I merged two of my favorite things together, which was Star Wars and Tiki, and um, it turned into, yeah, Geeky Tiki's, and there's a, does anybody out there have a couple of them? Well, you, you got, That's pretty you got cool. one sitting in front of you in that box. We do, we do. Um, it was very challenging when I first started. So one, to take these iconic characters that I had grown up with and put my own spin on it and Tiki-fy them, uh, Lucas, wasn't on board initially, so uh, we uh, we we did some designs. They said, "Oh, you could, you know, we'll do these couple characters. You can't do Darth Vader." Um, we did it anyways. We brought it to Comic Con uh, four years ago in my backpack, and we showed it to the Lucas team, and they said, "This is pretty cool. With some changes, we could uh, we can make this work." So it was really um, I was inspired. It was a lot more fierce looking. Uh, the stance, we, we really kind of took traditional tiki and it had to change because of license, licensing issues. Um, but what we have now is something that I'm very proud of. Um, it's a fun, you know, whether it's, 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 it's not true tiki, but it's a fun interpretation of what, you know, we think it is. So right. now I have heard that from the, 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 uh, the tiki purists who maybe even be in the audience that they're like, hey, Star Wars out. How is it? And now, and we, now we even have the breakfast heroes. We have Boo Berry. Those and, are some uh, of my favorites. Yeah, some Frank other and ones. And, it's basically anything that I grew up with or that I love okay. is it, and, I'm and passionate that, about. It reminds yeah. me of what Josh does, too, because it's all these things that I grew up with, too, across you know, every part of pop culture. Uh, like, like Josh did the uh, Spider-Man with the Sinister Six and Stan Lee. And, uh, I mean, you know, in addition to all these other things. But... I'm just curious, have, you, have either of you ever wanted to do, work with a, a property and then for whatever reason backed out or it was just too problematic? I mean, you don't have to name names, but... <laughs> I've been approached by a lot of properties that I just wasn't interested in, you know. Same. Things maybe, a lot of people are into them, but not me, and I knew if I did it, I could probably sell a ton of them. 
but I, I just didn't feel it. And I knew that if I didn't feel it, then I wouldn't be able to make something cool and it would just be, you know, it would end up being a piece of junk. So that's kind of my, more my thing. And it's rare that I actually go pursue an actual, you know, company or license. Uh, usually they've, they've approached me in the past. The only one I actually went out of my way to get was um, KISS, the rock band KISS, which was recent. <laughs> because Gene Simmons had a, a reputation for suing everyone. And I knew that if I went ahead and did it, he would sue me. Um, so I had to approach his, his uh, agent and, and negotiate a deal. And the other thing that's involved with licensing is also, it, it usually involves a lot of money, unfortunately. Uh, they want a lot of money up front if you're going to do something with their likeness. Um, Kiss, I went back and forth with, with them, and they kept asking for more and more. And finally, I just, you know, said, okay, uh, you know. And they said, well, we'll talk next year. And then they called me next year and said, okay. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to talk to Devin a little bit. We were talking at your booth. And um, so you were originally from Michigan. You went to Portland, Oregon, and now you're here. And you, your horror, I believe horror is your thing. I, mean, I don't know why I'm getting that, but you, I think you have a site <laughs> called Creepy Tiki. And uh, can you talk a little about your horror fandom? Yeah, sure. Um, my introduction into Tiki, uh, I was born in the Midwest in the late 70s, so there was no Tiki where I grew up. So my introduction was uh, two things. It was uh, Scooby-Doo uh, and it was uh, the Brady Bunch. And so when I moved to Portland, um, I wasn't really making any Tiki art, but I've been doing horror art for my whole life. And I started hanging out at Hale Pele and became uh, friends with the owners. All right. And uh, so they started hiring me to do menu illustrations, uh, Mai Tai glasses, and so then I started bringing that stuff to the convention, and then that started becoming the most popular stuff on the table. And then later that year, I was at a horror convention, and I got to sit next to uh, Victoria Price, who is uh, Vincent Price's daughter. And she said, hey, that's cool. Uh, you know, why don't you do something with my dad from the Brady Bunch? So she hired me to do an illustration of... Uh, Vincent Price and the Tiki Caves, and that became like a pretty popular piece for a while, and that's what most people know me for in the, the Tiki world, and I don't know, it just kind of came full circle, so like horror and Tiki were always things very early on, that was kind of my inception, so it's like, you know, that's, that's always been two connected things to me, yeah. Yeah, you were mentioning, I'm not sure if this is related to the artists here, but the, the guy that bought every bit of art from the Luz de Jesus Tiki related, he's doing a new Michigan Tiki bar, I'm just... Yeah, yeah, I guess like... Maybe what looks like it might be the biggest tiki bar in America. I don't know, maybe you guys can talk about this, but it's going to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Max's Hideaway. That's where I went to art school. And uh, yeah, so another weird full circle thing. But I think he, well, he came in and bought most of the La, yeah. the La Luz show. The I, first day of that show, yeah. you go in there and it's like everything is sold. And then they said, I one guy, one guy bought everything. What? Yeah. You, you've got one of the... Uh, uh, a kind of a small booth, like a traditional size booth. I know uh, Shag's got a really large, impressive booth, and then uh, there's uh, there's a there's a booth on the Star Wars sign too, which name there's a booth across from the Star Wars shoes. I'm not sure which booth that is, but that's a, that's a pretty impressive booth too. When you're like a smaller vendor at these, especially Comic Con, which is gigantic and crazy, um, I mean, just can you talk about that experience, just selling stuff here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, Comic-Con has always been my biggest show. I've been exhibiting here since 2002, and I uh, started in small press, and, you know, actually, I think my, my booth is a pretty good size. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, it is. You've got a lot of good work. You've got a lot of good work in your booth, and I recommend everyone goes to all three of their booths in the same visit, actually. Yeah, so... And there's a spacesuit in Shag's booth, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, they kind of have us all in that same area in the, the 4,000s to... You know, 4,700. Well, give, give the number out. To the oh, yeah. Uh, booth uh, 4614. And you can get this uh, wonderful uh, cabana set that uh, we just uh, had uh, put together last night by uh, Volcano Design. So anybody Ooh, wow. nice. debuting that today at the show, anybody Stand can buy. Up. We've got uh, cabanas. <laughs> we've got glassware. We've got uh, original art. So come on by to 4614. Thank you. <laughs> you know, just real quick, I was going to mention with regards to Max's Hideaway, Bosco did 20 huge poles for that bar. It's a three-story, two stories of bar, and then one story, the top story is an Airbnb. And I just, it just blows me away that just this one, you know, obviously legendary carver, did 20 
giant pulls for that, that, that one bar. Yeah. I think another thing Bosco needs to be recognized for is he's the very first person in 25 years to make a new tiki mug. So everyone makes tiki mugs now. There was a period where nobody thought to do that, and Bosco was the very first one. Bosco, to do that. hold your hold the mug up. Thank you. Hold the hold the mug up. And for the, for you folks that are visiting San Diego, which uh, many of you probably are, uh, you, you got to know that um, False Idol is just the Little Italy trolley stop. It's basically a Bosco bar. It's in the back of Craft, Craft and Commerce, and the other must-see restaurant in San Diego is the Bali High, which is like a testament to the entire this entire Pacific Island, everything. That's on Shelter Island. Uh, very, very important. Y'all visit those at least once. Uh, I wanted to mention, too, that over in the, in the corner there, we've got um, Adrian, and I don't want to butcher your last name, but he does the um, his Tiki podcast, Desert Oasis Room, which you should all download and listen to. Uh, he was kind enough to come down, and, and I think it's possible that this entire panel may be on the Desert Oasis, the Oasis Room. Is that right? In a future episode? Most people here have already been on the show. Okay, but this panel, too, might. I mean, oh, right. Um, so I, and then we also have, uh, I think we have Holden from Tiki Farm in the audience somewhere. So he's very shy, he's in the back, and he's, he's dressed very conservatively, but uh, if, for those of you that don't know, they're just up the coast in San Clemente, Orange County, and they've done uh, an un unbelievable amount of mugs. It could be even a couple more than Geeky Tiki, I don't know. A lot more, yeah. Okay. Uh, and if you get a chance to visit them, you can see there's probably work by many or most of these artists. Uh, I have a big collection at Tiki Farm. And one thing that I like with some of the mug manufacturers is someone on a normal kind of budget. I mean, I'd love to spend $1,000 on a mug, but on like a Tiki Farm budget and a Geeky Tiki budget, you can build out your whole collection on a kind of a normal price point, which is great because collecting can get, I mean, as we all know, collecting can get to be pretty expensive. Um, and it's nice when, when artists have, like, have stuff that kind of the average person can make, which is I mean, it's good, like Shag, for example, makes prints. And I mean, a lot of folks sell prints, and they're selling them here. So you can pick these up and, and appreciate. And the, the books, too. I mean, book, like books like Tom's book, hold it up again, are a great way to, to get copies of this art at a normal. Well, how much is your book selling for, Tom? 75 bucks. OK. And, and Martin? Martin in, in America. Nice. Sorry. <laughs> so, Susanna, do you have an art book out? Uh, I don't. Not yet. So she'll be maybe next. Devin, do you have a book? Um, I have a bunch of comics and graphic novels that are not tiki related, but you okay. can find me on Amazon. I think, I think eventually, the, the, hopefully, there'll be some more compendiums. Um, and oh, 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 this is what I was kind of curious. So I saw one of the pieces I was going to show of yours, um, Tom, is a rare political piece uh, from way back in the Bush administration. And I'm kind of curious about, because I know a lot of your art, it's sort of inspired by some underground-ish cartoons. And for the panelists here, uh, it seems like you've primarily had kind of G-rated G art, not, not very controversial. But has anyone wanted to do anything more on the political end or anything <laughs> pushing boundaries beyond just Tiki that you haven't done or you have and you just haven't displayed? I mean, anybody go ahead and speak up. Well, I, th I, no. I, I would no. just say that, that Tiki is definitely sort of transgressive in nature. So uh, uh, I, I think it's kind of natural for Tiki artists to do political stuff. Um, uh, it's all kind of on PC. So uh, I think that's, that's a natural fit. Um, I, there's a whole group of uh, sculptures I do that are very political, social, socio-political themed, but it, uh, it doesn't look anything like the, TD, the, the tiki art I do. It looks more like a, a Viewmaster kind of art you might have seen in the 60s, and they all look very innocent, but there's a, a subtext to the, uh, to, the, to the pieces. You know, the, we, we used to hear this expression, lowbrow art, a lot, uh, and it seems like now it's sort of merging with fine art. I mean, is there any point to even having distinction between fine art, lowbrow art, what, whatever, is it all just art, or do these, are these labels kind of meaningless now? Does anybody have a, anyone want to chime in? Well, real lowbrow art is a specific kind of art. You know, it doesn't aspire to be fine art. You know, so when you meet a real lowbrow artist like Franco out in uh, Palm Springs, 
he's, that's what he wants to do. You know, it's like Big Daddy Roth kind of stuff. He doesn't aspire to, to do other kinds of art. Um, you kind of dilute it, if you ask me, you know, when you're trying to be in a fine art world, doing low bar art. Low bar art, you know, requires a certain attitude, a certain, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. My, my book is called The Unaspirational Art of... There, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was going to go into the entrepreneurialism a little bit more because we were talking to uh, Tom McKitty about that. So for the folks that have worked both in the corporate commercial world and then being self-employed, I mean, let's say some people out here are thinking about working for themselves. Can you talk about the pros and the cons or the do's or the don'ts? Anybody? I always tell everybody, don't do it. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it it sounds really, like my dad. <laughs> I mean, it's, now the business is relatively successful, but I mean, it took 25 years for this. I mean, when we started, I was doing mugs all through the 90s. Nobody even knew why would you want to do a tiki mug. And the same thing with the carving. It wasn't until 2001 we did our first restaurant, Taboo Cove, in Las Vegas. And that was the first new bar built in the country since the 70s. And since then, it took another 10 years for this to kind of get a little more mainstream. I mean, it's nothing you want to try to retire on. <laughs> so is, is there any of the panelists here who um, are going to maybe go back to doing uh, the, you know, branding or marketing, or do you just, because I did talk to one artist who, he's, on the weekends, he, he does his tiki art, and then he's got a corporate eight-to-five job. I mean, do any of you think you're going to end up going back, just kind of do the I, art as I a could hobby? Talk to that. I could talk to that for a little bit. I, I'm an art director in an advertising agency, so the art that I do tiki-wise is something that I do for fun, rather than all the corporate branding and everything that we do on a daily basis. The last fun project I did was for Golden Optimus Tiki at the Bali High, and that was a fundraiser. I did, I did the, the, all the artwork for the advertising and it ended up being on some glasses and stuff like that. And Devin's done that too as well for, for the fundraisers. But um, on a daily basis, when you're, when you're working on, on websites and branding for everything else, it gets a little little monotonous, and you want to do a little something fun else. So that's one of the things that I like about doing tiki art and illustration. Hey, Adrian, do you have any interest in coming up here and sharing? Uh, sure. One of your I, I want to hear um, I want to hear your craziest or funniest story because you've interviewed uh, like, several hundred people. I mean, you, uh, yes. Um, and your show's gone. You, you could just stand. Your show's gone for years, right? So tell me what your craziest or funniest or wildest experiences with these artists, because we all know that artists, they can be kind of a temperamental lot and very uh, uh, interesting, diverse lot. Well, I'll say, so this is the third year of the podcast, and you know what's, what's really fun about it is I'm getting to meet some of these people that I've, you know, I always just knew them really on a peripheral level. We go to these events, we go to parties, we go to bars, but a lot of times I don't even know what people do for a living. I don't know what their other interests are. So when we do these podcasts, we really kind of do a deep dive on where their motivations are, why they got into what they do, the other things that they like outside of Tiki. And it's been a real, you know, like I, I, I feel like I have deeper relationships now. And what, what we're trying to do with the podcast is not only document what's happening with the current tiki movement, but also showing that the common thread amongst all of these artists and musicians and all of us revelers in this tiki world is that we're all searching for escape, right? This whole tiki movement is about escapism. I think everybody here would love to win the lottery, right? Everybody wants to quit their job. Everybody wants to do the things that they're passionate about. And that's kind of the common thread. I know you're asking me, like, what some of the unusual things are. You know, like, every experience is... Nothing particularly stands out other than that we all kind of are the same. You know, we all, we all are kind of in this pursuit of happiness. We're all kind of, like, again, escaping the, the tropical island is kind of like this destination that we all 
gravitate towards. Let me, let me ask you this. You have a beautiful tiki bar. Thank products. you. I was just at the most amazing tiki, home tiki bar last night that I've ever seen, that I even thought of. When, you're build, when you were building it out, did you use art from any of these folks when you're building? Or talk, talk about the, yeah. those who want to build their own home tiki bar. Talk about that process. Uh, okay. Uh, so there are unwritten rules about tiki. I try to follow those things. You know, it's, it's funny is because like a lot of these things are employed in bars and restaurants from, you know, what we like is this kind of escapist experiential experience. And a lot of that is removing the outside world. So some of these unwritten rules are the no windows, no TVs, no clocks. It's about keeping you from being distracted into what is reality, right? It's funny that all these old restaurants employed those things, including casinos. Most casinos back in the day, no TVs, no windows, no clocks. They also wanted to take you away from your reality. They wanted to have you be immersed in their environment so they could take your money. But also, it's, a, it's about escapism, right? It's about just forgetting that you've know, you got to go to work tomorrow. Right now, you're, you're going to have a drink. You're going to maybe play some cards and have a good time. Um, and then building the, the home space, you kind of follow these same principles perpetually dusk so that you don't know what time it is. Again, removing distractions. There's no clocks in my, my room. Because when we're there, we're having a good time. And when we do the podcast, it's again escape, escapism. We tell our stories. We enjoy the, the company of our friends. And we have a good cocktail, maybe, while we're doing all that. I want to... I know Holden is kind of a shy guy, but do you, Holden, do you have any interest in coming up here and answering a question? Give, give a big hand of, a round of applause. Holden Tiki Farm right here. I think, what I, I think um, first of all, just give a little, just a brief synopsis on what got you into the business and then this crazy ride it's been. Uh, hey, everybody. My name is Holden Wesley, and I have a company called Tiki Farm. Um, I came from an industry of science before I started Tiki Farm, and the predecessor to Tiki Farm was an early dot-com business called eBachelor Pad, and it was, a, it was everything under one roof of the ultimate bachelor pad. And Tiki, being a Southern California native, was my favorite element of my offerings for that, and uh, I figured if I could represent products wholesale for Tiki, then I could stick a couple in my house. Anyway, so I represented a company early on called uh, Dynasty, and their mugs were not of the best quality. And ironically, this gentleman here in the center, Bosco, um, in 2000 I met, and I rep Bosco even for about a year. And uh, so that's how it started. And uh, I just love making mugs. Well, thank you. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted everyone to know that uh, three of the folks here have booths. Um, I just want, can you all give their booth numbers in case people don't know? Who, uh, who have the booths here? I'm 3920, sandwiched between Comedy Central and Konami. And you're doing signings at 3 p.m. every day? I yeah, okay. three to four every day. I'm and he signing. has an astronaut suit in his booth. Yeah, you can actually get inside the suit and take a picture of yourself as if you're floating in space. <laughs> okay, and... Brandon, you were under the Star Wars sign next to the... Yeah, we're right under that giant Star Wars sign. Okay. Uh, Geeky Tiki's 2913M. So if you, a lot of people probably came by and said aloha, I hope so. But um, come by, say hi. Uh, we've got a great team over there. We'll answer any questions, give some sneak peeks of stuff we're working on. Uh, now, what if, about... If Lan Lucas isn't around. Lando Calrissian, what about... Lando is not at our booth, but he's going to be over at Entertainment Earth's booth uh, okay. from uh, 3 to 5 today, signing, uh, not this one, but the uh, Lando Calrissian uh, Tiki mug. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you know what I think would be cool is you get, this, get the Millennium Falcon mug and then put the, all the characters in it and then fly it around, especially <laughs> if you had like a to-scale Death Star and then you're flying it down the trench and going yeehaw. Are you taking notes? Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Devin, what's your booth number? And uh, Devin Devereaux Art at uh, 4614, and I also have a, a brand new mug at Mondo. And I wanted to mention... In, in Mouth Creek. Um, well, oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention really quick, I'm part of a group called Girls Drawing Girls. Yeah. 
and it's a, we have a booth against the back wall. Kelly, what's the booth number? 5628. It's a really cool group. There's a couple hundred members uh, worldwide, and we're all people in the animation and toy industry. We're all girls that draw sexy pinups. So, yeah, it's a really cool, supportive group. We've got a booth. You can come buy some art. Yeah. Um, some of the artists are going to come to a quasi-reception, uh, not all of them because they have to go back and sell at their booths, but the Royce Hawaiian in the back, apparently there's a shortcut, so I got a table if anyone wants to go back, it's just informal, um, and hopefully as many can come to sign because we can't do signings and photos in the room. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to kind of cover is, we're not going to have a whole lot of time for questions, but uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the travel before we get to any questions. So, so Josh, have you traveled to many tropical destinations? And you, I think you did live in Hawaii, didn't you? Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I lived in Hawaii for eight years, the first eight years of my life. Um, and I've been to New Zealand, and I think that's the only tropical uh, islands I've been to, unless you count the south of Taiwan, which was very tropical. Uh, Brandon, how about your travel? A tiki-related travel. Tiki-related travel. I have been to, uh, I haven't been there, but I've been to Bora Bora, which I really enjoyed. Nice. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, recently went to Thailand. Um, not, we, we, yeah, I get out when I can, but I'm, I'm so busy uh, working. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time uh, not as much time traveling as I'd like to, but I'm, this is my vacation in San Diego, but it's a fun one. Yeah. And, and, and Bosco, you, so you grew up in the LA area and you were, you were carving, uh, I mean, from your inspirations there, but did, have you been to any of these islands, like, and firsthand gotten inspiration for carving? Yes. Uh, we, recently we went to three islands, and then in the 90s I went to Oahu and Kauai. Um, the really weird thing about Tiki... Polynesian pop in the 60s was so much of the stuff you saw on the islands came from California. It wasn't from there. And if I had just one minute, I could tell a little fast story. When I was just getting into this, I was trying to figure out how to carve a tiki, and there was a guy outside of the international marketplace in a loincloth, a big Tongan-looking guy, and he was out there every day pounding with a wooden mallet, you know, and carving a tiki. So one morning I decided I was going to go out and watch how does he do this to see what you know, if I can steal his secrets. So I got out there very early. He came out, he dumped out a whole bunch of sawdust and got a log. He wasn't carving any of it. He was buying it from Tonga and he would sit there all day pounding on this thing like advertisement and people would come, there would be a crowd. He started this whole pigeon English thing. And he was just like a con man. And that's what the whole tiki thing really was originally. It was like this illusion. But he was just like the perfect example of it. I, I wanted to hear each of the, the panel members' greatest influence or person that they admire um, going down, starting with Atama Kitty. Um, wow. I mean, art, art or otherwise. That's really tough. I mean, because I, I come from a traditional illustration background, so I wouldn't even know where to start. But a lot of my art is inspired by uh, Golden Age and mid-century artists. So, um, like, pulp art and things that were, you know, in the magazines and the... 50s and 60s, um, so like Robert McGin M McGinnis, the amazing illustrator, like his compositions and colors are just amazing. Uh, you know him from like the 007, you know, Bond posters, things like that, just uh, beautiful dynamic stuff. How about you, Devin? Um, you know, as far as uh, old masters, I'd say Hieronymus Bosch is probably my, my favorite, um, you know, any older, you know. Um, artist, um, but uh, you know, I'll, yeah, also heavily influenced by a lot of, you know, illustrators like Drew Struzan and you know, even you know, folks like Shag, who's actually been one of my biggest influences. So very cool to be up here with uh, with this guy. And Tom, uh, I guess in, in terms of a, a traditional artist, I, I would say maybe uh, Paul Gauguin and 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 uh, Van Gogh and Frazetta and uh, you know, a thousand other artists. Uh, more contemporarily, I think the artists that got me in, interested in painting, uh, you know, transgressive art were artists like um, Robert, Robert Williams and uh, Todd Shore and Bosco's buddy Mark Ryden. And also, you know, I have to say Josh was a big influence in the amazing uh, narrative of, of his work. Um, 
you know, I'll, I'll, so many people cite Josh as as an influence. He's almost like the the Ramones of of of, of contemporary <laughs> art. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's 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 you know, it's impossible to to nail it down to one artist. So. If, if someone compared Josh to Andy Warhol, would that be near the mark or completely off the mark? <laughs> Are you asking me? I, yes, I mean, I'm asking you. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a an iconic pop artist at this point, and and you know, he's doing all these amazing uh, collaborations and stuff. So you know, I I don't know. I don't I don't know what that okay. means to say that he's a Andy Warhol, but he's okay. he's definitely influential. Uh, Bosco, greatest influence. Uh, well, I'm a classically trained artist, but when I decided to do tiki, I wasn't, did not do sculpture. So my father taught me, he was a woodworker uh, from the Guild of Craftsmen. He showed me how to carve, but I was lucky enough to meet uh, Rolly Crump, uh, Disney Imagineer, who did the tiki cool. room. And uh, he really helped me out a lot in the beginning. And then I also got to meet Mr. Westenhaver, who ran the Whitco Company. It was the biggest art production company from the mid-50s to mid-70s. And again, uh, he was just a wealth of information and you to be able to meet your heroes from that era that were doing the thing that you are now doing it's uh it's just unbelievable and martin uh well starting out as an illustrator i think uh the golden age of illustration and all of those guys that were doing all the illustrations for books back in the day i really liked uh more contemporarily it's i would say my inf my inspirations were uh Rick Geary, here's, here, you know, um, illustrator, good guy. Um, also, uh, just a whole bunch of different people. So I, you know, that kind and of Brandon. Thing. Well, um, all sorts of people. I, yeah. I grew up reading Mad Magazine, and I was an illustrator, and then I became a toy designer. Um, I moved down to LA to be an, an animator and worked for Disney, so I was heavily influenced by all the Disney artists. Um, got into the toy industry and, and now I'm making mugs. And it's just, I try to, in, try to bring that toyetic fun element to the tiki world. Um, so a lot of people, I get influenced from, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by everybody up here and uh, it's, it's great. Everybody out there, there's a lot, I get inspiration all the time, so. <laughs> well, uh, for me, definitely Rolly Crump too. He, you know, not only did he create most of the Enchanted Tiki Room, but he was a really cool sort of beatnik artist before that. Um, and also a guy named Gene Deitch who did jazz cartoons in the late 40s and, and 50s, uh, and later on was an animator as well. Um, and a lot of classic illustrators too that everybody's talked about. You know, Robert McGinnis, who, who Susanna was talking about, believe it or not, has been a big influence on me. Um, and a lot of anonymous commercial artists from the 50s and 60s, you know? I don't know their name, but I know their work and I like it when I see it. Yeah, yeah I think it's really important, the, uh, the people that came, came before, and you know, because a lot of, I mean, any music and art and everything else is probably gonna be derived from earlier and it's really hard to separate it all out, but uh, I wanted to take just a couple questions until we get kicked out of the room, so anyone, right here, sir? Maybe because uh, I've I've heard um, I keep looking at uh, I keep looking at Brandon. Yeah, I've heard some of the traditionalists say that that there's a hard limit, and this is with anything in general. It's it's kind of hilarious actually. It's like this is because I think humans want to categorize and put things into into containers. But yeah, anybody throw out the answer to that? I, I think as it becomes more and more popular with. Uh, all American culture, it's going to get a little more genericized as there's a broader audience, and then more people will say, oh, this is tiki, this is tiki, this is tiki. And some of the purists are going to say, no, it's not really. But then you have to stop and ask yourself, what do you consider to be tiki? Um, it's a whole culture, it's a phenomenon, and it's always been an amalgamation of a lot of different things. 
ever since the very beginning. It's been a faux Polynesia, so it hasn't actually been one real thing. And it's, tiki's like one of those words now that means a lot to a lot of different people. Uh, back in the day, there was a company called the Escalator Company. They made moving sidewalks, but not every, not every moving sidewalk was an escalator. So you call, call that an escalator. So you call whatever tiki now. Same way with if you make a Xerox of something. Any, anyone else? I really like, I really like oh, that sorry. it's expanding, too, because honestly, the, the tiki community was pretty small for a while, like yeah. the resurgence in the 90s. And we've all been we, you know, building home bars, and our places are full of art. We can't, we're saturated, so we need new people to buy art and buy mugs. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> so I embrace new people. I want to meet new people and get them excited about tiki because it's really fun to collect. It's great to have a home bar where you, it is escapism. So I think it's a, it's a really nice compliment to the Comic-Con thing. It's all about the joy of just immersing yourself in something you love. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a positive thing. So I don't like to be elitist about it because, uh, you know, there's room for everybody. <laughs> Maybe the next to the last, so. Oh, uh, not so much a question as an observation about like, the comments of Tiki. Um, in Spider-Man Far From Home, there are two characters, Ned, who is the, the nerd friend, wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt, plus Hawaiian shirts here, but also like the jerky rich kid, Flash, is also wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> That's a great. That's a great observation. You sir, you may be the last question. Go ahead. Yeah, I have a question, but I also wanted to thank all the If we do, get, if we do get kicked out of the room, remember uh, the, their booths, and then the Royce Hawaiian when a few of us will be going, and then also make sure you look up everyone's book and website and all that. I guess maybe we have time for one more question. Well, he, he had a question. Right, right. <laughs> hey, Is this the one in, uh, in Corvallis outside of Portland? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, it was very kind of just generic tiki. I remember when that happened. I was living in Portland at the time when that happened. And yeah, there was, there was a big, you know, question of like, what is a cultural, you know, appropriation? And, you know, like, you know, like who's, you know, who's being offended? And, um, but, you know, I mean, Portland is a very sensitive, you know, city for, for that, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot, a lot of it can kind of pass in other places, but there's a lot of people, you know, policing that kind of thing in the yeah. Portland area. I, I would say specifically to that bar, it was it, the, the depiction of Tiki was kind of um, offensive. It was, it was r real cartoony and, you know, rings in the nose. And, and it, it, I think that there's a, a, a threshold where it, where it, it, it no longer has any kind of reverence for the original uh, culture and, and kind of gets, you know, in, uh, kind yeah, of insulted. It, it, it seemed like more, that one specifically seemed like more of a, a cash grab than actually kind of celebrating the culture, which is what all the, the best, you know, like Tiki bars would do, actually celebrate, you know, the Pacific Islands. And this one was just like, let's go to Party City and, you know, get some, some clown Tiki and just make something yeah. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go, go ahead. 
That's a great thing. Well, I actually, I haven't had a drink in five years, but I used to have a go-to, and that was the Singapore Sling, because that was really tart and not sweet. I'm a painkiller guy. I like the Bombo. Anyone? <laughs> it's real simple. It's real simple with a little nutmeg on top. So. Uh, down the beach, Comer Rum Barrel. <laughs> Oof, that's good. Um, I, Navy Grog, for sure. Uh, if you've never had one before, uh, Leilani Volcano. I would say Navy Grog, or if you get to go to the Maikai in Florida, the Black Magic is the most delicious drink on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> one more drink you can only get in one bar, and that's Ray's Mistake at Tiki oh, Tea in LA. That was my favorite drink of all time. Ray's Mistake from the Tiki Tea. I, I would also mention that, that I think Susie is the only uh, professional bartender uh, on, yep. in the, on the panel. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting the, uh, the dreaded stop sign, but folks, if you want to ask questions and you can't grab your favorite panelists in the hallway, go by their booth or come to Roy's Hawaiian, which is right in the back here, and get a drink with us or whatever, and please patronize and buy stuff from these great artists. Thank you. Next up, Little Lulu. And there you have it. Tiki art and Polynesian pop in American culture from San Diego Comic Con. If you enjoyed this episode, check out polynesianpop.podomatic.com to find previous feature-length episodes with some of our panelists, including Bosco Hernjack, Tom Laura, Susie Mosher, Martin Lindsay, and Holden Westland. And please help us keep this show on the air by going to desertoasisroom.com to pick up some merch or make a donation. I'd like to thank James Wasser for including me on this panel, as well as allowing me to record this episode for the podcast. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time inside the Desert Oasis Room.